Good. That's about right, right there. Praise God. We moved to Thailand full-time in June of 2003. At the time that we moved there, Thailand had about 67 million people. Now we're up to about 70. I would go around to churches while we were on deputation and talk about the need for missionaries and the gospel in Thailand. A country at that time, 67 million people, 95% Buddhist, 4% Muslim, less than 1% Christian of any kind or denomination. I had said that many, many times while we were in America going from church to church, talking of our burden for Thai people. And we moved to Thailand and I started going to language school. I would get on a, I would back in those days, I would ride, where we lived in Bangkok, I would ride a bicycle to a bus stop. You guys heard my story about my mistake of riding the bicycle the wrong way. (laughs) I would ride my bicycle to the bus stop. I would get on a bus, take a bus to a train station and take a train station downtown Bangkok. When I would get on the train subway system to go downtown Bangkok, it would be jam-packed full of people. Jam-packed. If you've ever seen... Maybe you've seen pictures of Asians on subways, jam-packed, where occasionally you even have people who are standing on the platform, the security officers or people who work for the subway, actually pushing on people's backs to get them before those doors close, jam-packed. You're sandwiched in there. You can't not touch people. They're everywhere. And I would get off of that subway in downtown Bangkok, and it would be on a platform, and I would take the escalator as I'd go down that platform, from that platform to street level to walk to my language school. I did it for a couple months and it never, there are people everywhere like ants. Everyone's going to work at the same time downtown in the business district of Bangkok. And I don't know why it hit me one day, but as I was going off that platform, going down the escalator, and for some reason, the sight that I saw every day for months now hit me differently and I got to the bottom of that escalator and I stopped off to the side so people wouldn't run me over and I just did this. People absolutely everywhere. And what had been a statement I had made to people in churches in Iowa and Ohio and Florida and Maryland and New York and Pennsylvania where if the, the Bible is true and Jesus is the only way and Thailand being what is 95% Buddhist, 4% Muslim, less than 1% Christian of any kind or denomination, it hit me that day that if the Bible is true, God's word is true and Jesus is the only way, then 99% of the people I'm looking at right now are lost. And I said to myself, Nate, what in the world are you doing here? 
What is some American guy doing in Thailand trying to learn some Thai? What difference is it going to make? Get back on that escalator and just go home. It made me ask the question, what difference does one person in a sea of people, and even if I was the best, which I'm not, what difference would it make? There are missionaries who have come before me. The gospel has been in Thailand for 250 years now, yet it has not made a difference in Thailand, it seems. What difference does one person make? Then it made me ask the question, what is it that God really needs to bring about great victories? What is it that God really needs to bring about salvation to many? And then as we formed our team and we moved to that west side of Bangkok, we chose that specific area because in that area, there are about 3 million people. And from our study, there were never any churches even attempted to be planted in that area. And that question comes to my mind again. What difference does it make? And God encouraged me with the story in scripture that's true, that maybe we have not studied before because this guy isn't one of maybe the big heroes of scripture and what God can do through one person. It's all God, but what he does through single individuals. Turn your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're going to start, we're going to tell you a story. We're going to read a story together. We're going to read quite a few verses tonight. I want the Bible to tell the story to us. Here's this. The story of simply one man's faith and the difference that it made. We come to this portion of Scripture And King Saul is still the king. David is not the king yet. And I want you to see, we're going to look at the situation, we're going to look at some problems, and we're going to look at the solution to the problem that faced those Israelites on that day. What's this all about? Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to start reading. And the first thing we're going to see, I want you to see in these first four verses, we're going to look at the situation. What's the situation taking place in 1 Samuel Starting in chapter 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and then when he reigned for two years over Israel. So Saul has been king for two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. So here's what's going on. Philistia is on the very western, so if you're looking at me, the very western side bordering the Mediterranean Sea, the very western side of modern-day Israel or of Canaan in those days, becoming Israel. And there were seasons of war, and the Philistines are starting to come 
and Zyphes, they're starting to come east into Israel to do war with the Israelites. Jonathan goes out and he defeated the garrison at the Phil- of, of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. What's the problem there? It actually wasn't Saul, it was Jonathan, but Saul took credit for it. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. What's the situation here? Here's what's going on. In these first four verses, we see because of what Jonathan has done, he's, he's gone. He's gone ahead of his father, away from his father's command without his father knowing about it. And he goes and he attacks these Philistines because they're invading Israel. He's gonna fight them. He defeats one garrison. Paul takes, excuse me, Saul takes credit for it, but now it's on because Jonathan has just thrown a rock at a hornet's nest. And these Philistines, they don't just wanna kill these Israelites. It says, the Bible uses that word stench. These people are worse than human. They're stench, they're disgusting. Let's get rid of them once and for all this time. That's the situation. Okay, so what's the problem? God's on Israel's side, right? Shouldn't be a problem. God has done this before. He's, he's given victories to Israel before, right? This shouldn't be a problem this time either. Well, there's some problems ahead. Look on at verse five. We're gonna read verse five and keep going a little bit. Let's look at what's the first problem. There are really three, but here's the first problem. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Wherever there was a place to hide, guys who used to be army men for Israel were finding those places. When all of the places on the Israel side, were taken by people hiding in them. What did those guys do who were looking for new places? They crossed the Jordan River to find new places to hide. We're not done yet, though. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the, of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Those who stayed behind are scared to death. He waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, wait seven days before you do anything because I, as a priest, am called to go and ask God for his help in war. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. Saul, they're starting to run away. They're getting even more scared. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God 
with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept the word the Lord commanded you. So we have a situation. This isn't a new situation. The situation, the Philistines are entering. They're invading Israel. They're getting ready for war. That's not the hugest problem in the world. This happens every year. God has helped Israel in the past. This shouldn't be the biggest problem that's ever faced Israel. But there is a problem. What's the problem? The king, the leader of the army, the one everyone will follow into battle, the one they look to to be their leader, not just in battle, but in faith and almighty God has what? Sinned against that very God he claimed to believe in. King Saul sinned before God. He didn't have the right to make that offering before God. That was Samuel's job. So why did Saul make that offering if he knew it wasn't his job in the first place? Right here, King Saul showed that his religion was just simply religion. It wasn't about faith in God. It was no different than bowing down to an idol, rattling beads, asking for good luck. And when Samuel didn't come, what am I gonna do now? Instead of acting in faith, Instead of doing what he knew to be right and true, he says, I've got to ask for good luck some way. If Samuel's not here, I better do it myself. And who saw this? Who was there when King Saul makes that offering that everyone in Israel knows it's not his job to make? Who saw it when this guy does what he's not supposed to do? Everyone. Right here, King Saul shows that his religion is not about faith in God Almighty. It's about rattling beads and asking for good luck going into battle. If you're a soldier and you see the guy leading you into army in a situation where you need God's help and your leader does that, what are you doing? You're making a reservation at the next cave, the next hole in the ground, the next cistern, the open grave, crossing the Jordan. You're getting out of Dodge because you know this guy who's supposed to lead you by faith into battle has no faith in God at all. That's a problem. That's not the only problem. Look at verse 15. As if that wasn't bad enough, there... That's not the only problem. Then we read in verse 15, and Samuel rose, went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal, Benjamin, Agibia, Benjamin. Saul numbered the people who were present with him about how many? Say it together. One, two, three. <laughs> that would seem to be a problem. What's going on here? What's the second problem? We just read in verses 5 through 14, the Philistines have how many chariots? 30,000. How many horsemen? 6,000. How many infantrymen? As many as the sand on the seashore. Hundreds of thousands. And Israel has 600. Can you imagine... If you're an Israelite soldier that day, you're standing, looking across what could be a potential battlefield, and you're a Philistine soldier, and you're looking across at your enemy, 
and you're like, and you call 100 of your closest friends, and you're like, we'll take that guy. <laughs> Got it? We're good. Get another 100 guys. You take that guy. Can you, Hunter, take it? We got it. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, infantrymen as many as the sand on the seashore, to 600 who are still willing to fight. As if that's not bad enough, there's another problem. Jump down to verse 19. The problems just keep getting bigger and better. Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found through all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, or his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was about two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and about a third of a shekel for sharpening of the axes and for setting of goods. So on the day of battle, <laughs> on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand in any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. King Saul has just sinned against God Almighty. Everyone's seen it. Everyone's heard Samuel say to Saul what? You will not be king forever. Your family will not follow you on this throne because you have no faith in God Almighty. They've seen his sin. They've heard Samuel's words. They look out and they see the enemy. It's crazier than you could imagine. And if that wasn't enough, they don't have what? They don't have weapons. I'm kind of wondering about these 600 guys who stayed around. Those guys have some good intentions. That's fantastic. Okay, what in the world are they thinking? Here, right here, right now, in the history of Israel, if everything doesn't look lost, I don't really know what lost means. This is done. Won the world. God has just caught, he's just spoken judgment on the king. There's no, there's no soldiers to fight. There's no weapons even if we have soldiers. Won the world. It's over. But it's not. Chapter 14, verse 1. The solution. What's the solution? Look at this. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come up, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. I really wonder about those 600 guys. <laughs> they must have had really bad ACT scores. <laughs> Wow. They're going for the participation trophy. <laughs> Including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Boses. Boses means shiny or slippery. 
So on this side, if he's gonna go up this ravine, it's gonna be sharp and shiny and slippery, difficult to climb. The name of the other was Sine. Sine means thorny. So he's got this ravine, two different ways he can go up either side of this ravine to get and over, to go to the garrison of the Philistines. He's got to make a choice. Do I go up over the slippery, shiny side, 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 thank you very much, or do I go up the thorny side? The one crag rose to the north in front of Michmash and the other on the side in front of Geba. Look at this, John and then verse six, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, here's what we're going to do. We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, hey, look. Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Come on up. I got some for you. That's literally what they said. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of the Israelites or to Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And at that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. And if we were going to keep reading, God caused an earthquake. That earthquake scares the snot out of those Philistines where they start fighting each other. They take off. They run home. The Israelites see what's going on. They start to chase. But Jonathan has brought about that great victory. They go home. Israel wins another year. It was impossible. They were done. They had problems galore. But God wins. Why? What's the solution? What's the solution to all this? What does it come down to? Here's what it is. Here's the solution right here, you guys. What does it take for big victories, for big miracles, for God to do great things, for God to bring salvation to many? The story here, the solution in this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 14, it's not David, the great King David. It's not the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses. It's one man's faith in God Almighty to save. Jonathan, God Almighty used Jonathan and his faith where he says, nothing restrains God to save, whether it's by a whole bunch of people or by very few. Jonathan put his faith in God and went and fought and God brought about an impossible victory. God rewarded Jonathan's amazing faith by giving an impossible salvation.
to Israel that day. Jonathan simply needed to do what? Believe God. What are you talking about? Was there some secret promise that God had given to Jonathan to go do that? He put, Jonathan put what he knew to be true in his head into action in his hands and his feet and his body. What is that truth? What is that truth that Jonathan knew? It's the truth that God is the one who miraculously brought about the Jewish race by giving an old man and a barren old lady a son named Isaac. That's a miracle. It was the truth that God is the one who allowed a Jewish person to become second in command of Egypt so that when there was a famine in Canaan, God used Joseph to save his whole family and they grow into a nation of two million Jews. It was the truth that God is the one who had rescued those Jewish people from slavery in Egypt through Moses. It was the truth that God is the one that split the Red Sea in half so the Jews could walk across on dry ground. And as after they get across, that same sea that's been split in half, God causes to collapse on the Egyptian army and kills them. And they're never a problem for Israelites again. It was the truth that it is God is the one who preserved those Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years, even though they didn't believe in God. It was the truth that it is God is the one who had given that land to that Jewish people in the first place. That's why we call it the promised land. What truth did Jonathan believe and know? Jonathan knew that God is not limited. He is not restrained. And because God is not limited or restrained, Jonathan's faith was not limited or restrained either. God is not limited by the lack of faith in others as it was the case with Jonathan's own dad, Saul. God is not limited by the fear of others, as was the case with his fellow soldiers. God is not limited by the lack of information or weaponry. God is not limited by the difficulty of the, ter the terrain or the place we have to climb up to get to that place. He's not limited by thorns. He's not limited by slippery rocks. He is not limited by the scoffing of the enemy who don't believe him at this minute, but in five minutes, they're going to believe in the God of heaven and run from Jonathan. And the crux of the story, in Jonathan's own words, he is not limited in saving, whether it's by a whole bunch of people or by a few. God will keep his promises. How did Jonathan know these things? You see, I want to make this really clear. We need to be careful when we, when we talk about stepping out in faith. There's a difference between Promises and presumption. Presumption is not faith. If the Bible doesn't give a promise and we just step out thinking it's faith, we may step out and fall flat on our face. That's presumption. But there's a difference when the Bible says, this is what God says. This is the promise of God. Then God's going to do it. So what promises did Jonathan have? Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8. He would have known these verses. 
And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. He knew, he would have read, and he would have known Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7. The Lord shall cause thine enemies to rise up against thee, that rise up against thee, be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee thee seven ways. Because of these promises, God's promises in his word that Jonathan would have opportunity to hear and to read. He had promises that said, this is our land. God has given to, it. If, given to us. If we fight, we'll keep it. Because God has made a promise. Because he had these promises, Jonathan knew what God's will for Israel was and what God's desire to do was also. Friends, I suggest that this is all true for us today as well, except we have even more promises. We have Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. We have Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit is come upon you. We have Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not stand against it. So what's the challenge? What's the point? I think the challenge is what God wants. I hesitate to use the word need because what does God need? But what God wants is he wants people simply to say yes to his call. He wants people, he needs people, someone who will step out and just let God be God. And whatever that looks like, just let it, what what God wants to do, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to do it, whatever it looks like. Jonathan that day Jonathan, I don't believe Jonathan was looking for either some impossible victory, nor was he wanting to die. He says to his armor bearer, what? Let's check out and see what the Lord might do. If they say, we're coming down to you, we know it's not working. If they say, come up to us, we know it's working. They didn't either have this big idea of grandeur, nor did they say, we just have a death wish, let's go die. But this guy was willing to put it all out and just say, whatever God wants, let's, ha- let's let it happen. Let God be God. That's the challenge. Let God be God. What does that mean, letting God be God? What are you talking about, Nate? Let me share some things that I think, based on this story, what we might take away and apply in our own lives about what it means to let God be God. Number one, I think letting God be God means I let him decide the battles I fight. I do not decide on my own. I let him decide the who, the where, the when, the how. How often, you guys, how often do we play the role of God when we say, this person looks like they want to hear the gospel? This is the battle that needs to be, I don't, or I don't think he wants to hear, or I'm pretty certain that they won't listen. And in so doing, we have played the role that only God can play. Just put it out there and let God decide. On the other side, if we were completely convinced and we were 100% sure that if we witnessed to this person and he or she would accept Christ, what would we do? 
You better believe we'd be making a beeline to witness him, wouldn't we? Let God be God means we let him decide the battles we fight. How often are we making those decisions? I think also that second point, letting God be God means I step out in faith and trust him for the results. I let him decide the outcome, not me. When you and I say no to God's leading, when we know that God is leading us, God has burdened us with something and we say no, we have made the decision for God. Let God decide the results. I am 100% reliant on this truth in Bangkok, Thailand. I have not the slightest clue what Jesus might be willing to do at being Glau Baptist Church in Bangkok, Thailand. I, I have not the slightest. Here's what I know. I'm going to stick around and find out. Until God says, go somewhere else. I want to, it's, it's God. What does letting God be God mean? I think it also means that even if I'm the only one who steps up to the fight, I've got to do it. Why? Because God doesn't need a big army anyway. Looking back on this story, what was God's will what was God's plan for that battle that day? It was God's plan to bring about victory, was it not? Those 600 men who were left over, could they have joined in? They absolutely, absolutely could have. They didn't. Letting God be God means I'm going to have to step. There are going to be times when... It, even among a group of Christians, I'm, there, there are going to be just times when I'm going to have to step out and say, I'll be the one. What does letting God be God mean? I, mean, I think it also means I obey him even when my friends and family do not. You think about what has just taken place in Jonathan's life. Can you catch the gravity of what's just taken place? Jonathan knows his dad has done what? Sinned against Almighty God. Do you suppose that Jonathan also knows that Samuel has told his dad, none of your sons will sit on the throne? Suppose Jonathan knows that? I think he probably does. In Jonathan's mind right here, what in the world is, there is nothing to gain. Physically, on this side of heaven, there is nothing to gain and everything to lose. There is nothing in it for Jonathan. He's not going to be king. His dad has ruined it for him. He, if, he, if he's really thinking smart, just get out of here. Go home and think about what your next step is because you're out of a job, pal. But God's not hindered to save, whether it's by a whole bunch or by a few. Some of you maybe need to make some of these decisions even tonight. Step out in faith. Step out on the promises of God, even when your friends and family don't. And finally, I think letting God be God 
in the end, it's going to open the door for God to do amazing, unbelievable things that only he can do in the first place. You want to see God do amazing things? Put God in the position to do God things. You want to see God do nothing? Say no every time he asks you to do something. Make excuses for why it can't happen. So Pastor Nathan, are you saying that if I step out in faith, that God will do something as momentous and as amazing and miraculous as Jonathan? Nope. I'm saying that if you step out in faith and obedience, you put God in the position to do what only he can do in the first place. And he is the God of the impossible. And I'm waiting for that in Bangkok, Thailand. What is it that God really needs to bring about great victories and bring many people to Christ? He doesn't need a big army. He just needs individuals who will truly let God be God. Quit making excuses. Quit saying no. Quit fighting against what God would want to do through you. Because as we've already said this week, he means you no harm. Are you tonight letting God be God? Are you riding for the brand for real? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. In the quietness of this moment, I want to do as we've done each night and simply ask the question so I can pray for you and challenge you to respond if God is working in your heart and you know it. If you know that there's a decision you need to make tonight, you know God is working in your heart. Would you simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? Make that first step. I see hands. Yes. Are there others that will raise your hand? God is working in my heart. I need to make a decision tonight. Pray for me, Pastor Nate. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Are there others that you know God is at work in me? I need to do something. I need to make a decision. I see those hands you can put down. Thank you. Thank you. God, we have not the slightest clue what you might be willing to do through our lives, but we know you're the God of the impossible. We know and are reminded that you don't need a big army because you can save. You can bring about great salvation by many or by a few. Have a victory. Win in our hearts tonight. If there's someone here who needs to accept Christ even this evening, finally needs to yield have victory in that heart this evening. If there are those who need to make decisions to say, I'm just going to let God be God. I'm going to obey like I haven't in the past. With God's help, I'll do it. Help them to solidify those things even tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.